episode 16, using miniatures in your game, and you are a cat. talking about miniatures, specifically how to use miniatures for your role-playing game. Miniatures have been used in role-playing games before, and some people are probably using them right now. However, it's a recent phenomenon that people have not really been using miniatures for their role-playing games, and we're going to be covering how to actually integrate minis into your uh, game sessions. So basically how to get started with miniatures. It's interesting that this is a topic that is new to some role players out there because when role playing games started as we know them in the 1970s, it was an offshoot of miniatures wargaming and yeah, like you said, it's a relatively recent thing for people to role play exclusively without them and they might be missing out on something fun. I think miniatures are really useful if you have a game that has a lot of combat sequences and that has a very good combat system that basically the miniatures help you figure out where you are in relation to your enemies. Uh, In terms of the actual interaction between people, well, that's another thing, but... One yeah, the role-playing is just incidental to it all. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> if you're going to be using miniatures, obviously you're going to be moving your minis all over the place and then talk to other minis, you know, you're, you're, that, that would be a little bit silly. I mean, it, it's, it's still like a playing piece. But one of the things, too, that I, I've seen people doing now is because of the molds that are available, like the Here Stars Dungeon and so on, people are actually making three-dimensional versions of the dungeons and playing out these things with minis and I think that's that's another you know thing that people don't really do very often probably because you know that it's not it's a little difficult to to do this you know the fog of war you know I, I need to know I don't I, I don't know what's beyond that room but obviously that room has to actually be already laid out in miniatures and so on but playing with miniatures is something that a lot of people are, are used to with maybe a grid but maybe, you know, with decors and so on, like you would do with a war game, I don't know, that, that might be something that a lot of people okay, haven't no, used. It, it is before. true that a lot of uh, miniatures play in uh, role-playing games is on a, uh, a mat that has a standard hexagon grid, or in more popular role-playing games, square grids that pretty much limit movement in straight lines and or right angles or... 60 degree angles in the case of hexagons. In traditional miniatures wargaming, there is no such thing. It's done pretty much free form. You can move in any direction, and distances are not measured in hexes or in squares, but in inches or centimeters if you're more metric. So I guess the first thing we're going to look at is uh, how you get started with incorporating miniatures in your game. Well, first thing, obviously, you need to obtain something that you can use as miniatures. Basically, what a miniature is, is a representation of a creature, a character, or anything else that uh, people can interact with uh, during a game. Now, going out there to buy a full-fledged set of metal or plastic miniatures and painting them 
that's an awful lot of work for the beginner to do. You should really just get used to spatially using them in a game first. And there are a lot of cheap or free options out there. Cardboard miniatures are one thing. Ones that you could just print up on cardstock and you know fold into a triangular type of shape so that you can move them around on the game board. Also, you could just use plain cardboard counters like pogs, chits that uh, many war games use, and pawns from uh, board games or or from uh, you know the more complicated board games that use small plastic figures that are, for all intents and purposes, uh, miniatures. There are many, many different options in that regard, and all of those you know you don't have to paint them first off, as long as you know whose character is represented by which figure, which figure represents the monsters, etc., you can do that. It's you know, a very cheap, very easy way you can get started, and you'll be able to use miniatures rules that way. Now, another thing you might want to uh, look at is if you actually have a role-playing game and you want to incorporate miniatures to it, why not actually go to your friendly local gamer store and look at the miniatures that are on sale and see if that inspires you into doing a game. So for instance, if you have like some minis with there's a bunch of orcs and got, you know, some cultists from the Call of Cthulhu line or whatever, well, maybe you you could actually come up with a scenario with that and 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 buy these miniatures along with your heroes as opposed to, you know, going and buying every single miniatures you could possibly use should your pieces encounter just about everything in the, let's say, the Monster Compendium if you're playing D&D or something. So that, that this, way... This is true. People who do uh, play miniatures, not only for role-playing games on a regular basis, but also miniatures wargaming, which is a hobby in and of itself, they do get inspired for the scenarios they like to play just by um, looking at what miniatures are available out there, the ones that they think would be cool to play with, cool to customize and to paint and so on influence their gaming decisions. Now, the other thing, too, is is that if you're role-playing, obviously, you're the player. So, you're playing in there. Now, Game Master, well, he's got to have all the NPCs and so on. Now, in a war game, there's usually two people. There's, like, you know, the, the two players are fighting off. Each of them get their armies. So, it can be a little bit daunting for the Game Master to go out there and buy, like, 200 bucks of figurines for an RPG. This um, is another reason why when you get started with miniatures you should go for the paper or the cardboard option because this is a very expensive aspect of the hobby. Well it can be expensive but I mean the other thing too is that the players could actually pitch in and bring in their own miniatures. Yeah it's true you know get one for your PCs and you know that also takes some time out of the painting too because you only have to paint one miniature that is if you get yeah. to the stage where you feel like you know you're comfortable with painting miniatures that way if you only have one to make rather than a whole party of six or a whole horde of monsters like the GM is eventually going to have to do that does take some of the load off of the GM. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I never actually think the GM should actually buy the player's miniature. The players should actually go out there and buy their miniatures 
or maybe the whole party should actually go on the uh, shopping spree with their GM and then buy miniatures, and the GM could actually just you know, mess with their mind by buying a dragon just for the hell of it. But, but then oh, be, 12 uh, mind flayers. No, don't, don't worry. Those are just for show. Yeah, not just for show. I'm not going to do anything to you guys. No, that's fine. But many of the players should actually go and buy miniatures themselves to actually bring sort of like a library of, of minis. And so everybody can sort of pitch in into their... Yeah, that's probably know. the best way to do it. You know, say, hey, like, I want to do something with goblins. Does anybody here have goblins? Can I borrow your goblins? Yeah, exactly. And then you know and then you have the chance of actually destroying your players with their own minis, which is even funnier. Yeah, that's 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 quite true. That's quite true. You know, you don't necessarily have to buy expensive pure minis. Obviously that, that would be those are always fun to have. Um even if you say you're not into minis. But um, I've, I've played games where we use minis extensively, but uh, we didn't actually buy them. We just went to uh, one of the uh, the stores that sold a lot of Mage Knight things on discount, and we had all these Mage Knight's minis, and we just used that. And, and of course, there's all these collectible... Uh, uh, you know, there's tons of minis out there. You know, initially, the only problem is is that... The old WizKids products yeah, come pre-painted. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, you don't have as much choice as to what is actually being represented. It's almost like using, like, you know, coins or, or washers. Well, they're not that bad as coins or washers, but the point is, is yeah, because yeah, they're you know, pre-painted <laughs> and prefabricated by yeah. this company, there's only going to be one pose of each. Well, there's one pose of each, but you don't have a choice of what minis you're going to get when you get one of those, like, bulk collectible trading miniature things. Because the problem is, is that, okay, well, I need five orcs, but I only have, like, two skeletons and three witches. Well, the three witches and the two skeletons are the five orcs. So just use your imagination on that one. Now, there's um, an awful lot of that in, in, so, in a lot of minis gaming, unfortunately. Yeah, but maybe when you actually have like the actual pure minis or stuff like that that actually represent a specific thing, um, well, then, you know, that's... that's you know. And I should point out here, like when you keep mentioning pewter miniatures, a lot of people are, don't realize what these things are made out of. Older miniatures, like from the 1980s and 1970s, were made out of lead. Oh, what's wrong with that? The Romans drank out of glasses that were made out of lead, and, yeah, then, and then nothing happened to them. Well, they just got brain <laughs> brain damage. The thing is, the people were concerned about lead poisoning. It also, even if they didn't get poisoned by the lead, there was the danger that, well, not the danger, it very really happened, that the lead, because it's essentially it's a very soft metal, would mark up the table just like a pencil would. So then they started going to what is now called white metal, which is an alloy, non-toxic alloy, lead-free. Generally, it's tin with a bit of copper, sometimes zinc added, sometimes antimony added, though that's rare. It's, but the main ingredient is tin. The pewter is a mixture of lead and zinc, and that's not as common for hobby miniatures for hobby games. It's more, it's a very beautiful alloy that's used for display gears that are too big for gaming, and also for some forms of costume jewelry. But the, in general, the metal miniatures that are available these days are made of uh, a tin copper alloy, just that's referred to as white metal. There are also plastic miniatures out there, and without going to the different kinds, there's basically hard plastic and soft plastic. And those are often cheaper, in bulk especially. They're not made so much for role-playing games, made more for war games or for people who like making uh, dioramas. 
but they can be used for RPGs. And they're a good value for the money, but they have different considerations when you're painting them, which we won't get into just yet here. And the other thing, too, is if you want to have a quick arsenal of monsters to use, I mean, go for, you know, these games that have all these plastic miniatures. Um, either it's Descent or uh, the the old vintage uh, Warhammer Quest, Dungeon Quest, and all these dungeon-crawling sort of games that has all these minis. Here's a hint, many of them are by Fantasy Flight Games. Yeah, or Milton Bradley. I mean, you can even buy them on, on used copies on on the on eBay and so on. And these a lot have of garage sales. You yeah, can find them yeah, too. and garage sales too. Like always, check out because some of these are going to be clueless enough and put out like, here you go, Advanced Hero Quest. You know, unopened. That was my son's thing. I'm just selling it out. Okay, fine, five bucks. Okay, I'll buy it. Then you walk away with like some eighty miniatures. You know. And meanwhile, you've got somebody back there at the garage cells blacking their hands like gamers. I don't understand them. You know, these actually give you a lot of, of minis for your buck. Because if you wanted to buy as many of, the, of that in metal, of course, it would cost you more than the 100 bucks it would get, you know, to get all of these. So, they, you know, overall, it's almost like, almost like a buck per mini or, you know, maybe 50 cents per mini if you're lucky. But if you actually buy a set like that, you have, like, the whole inventory of the monsters you can use. And then you can just... Use that as you slowly fill out your your arsenal. Now, having said all of that, one thing that you'll notice is that regardless of where you buy your minis or if you already have some minis and you want to buy some new ones, you have to watch out for the scales. And then sometimes, it's, you know, most people, it doesn't really bother them. But if you really want to have a neat little gaming table and all the minis are in the same scale, we should probably go into what the scales of miniatures are. Well, there's so many scales available for miniatures that are used variously for dioramas, for just straight collectible purposes, for role-playing games, and for wargaming, that to list them all here would take too long. This podcast would be over two hours long and we would barely scratch the surface. There's a fairly comprehensive list available at the Miniatures page. That's an actual website. The link to it is in the show notes. I'll talk about the more common scales here that are used for role-playing games. By and large, the most common scale is 28 millimeters. This is the scale that's most commonly associated with Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. It's 28 millimeters is slightly larger than an inch. Now, 28 millimeters roughly maps to 1 to 57.5 in scale. You can round that up to 160. In other words, 1 inch is equal to 5 feet. That's how scales generally work, is that there's a ratio involved there. 25 millimeters, obviously that's an inch, is a little bit smaller than 28 millimeters. Not by much, but people who play with miniatures enough really notice the difference. And a very common scale there is that one inch equals two yards, where one inch is equal to effectively 72 inches which is why you'll very commonly see 172 as the scale written out there rather than the millimetric scale. Those are the two most common scales used. Now you'll find in GURPS, which is based on the assumption, or at least third edition GURPS was, based on the assumption that people would be using miniatures or cardboard miniatures on a hex grid. It was a one inch hex grid where one inch equaled one yard. They used imperial measurements in that game. 
yet the miniatures themselves were only one inch high. So it was actually out of scale. The characters were to scale on the map, one yard tall. This was a little strange thing that was common in GURPS, a game that otherwise likes to be as realistic as possible. But that's neither here nor there. Your typical D&D miniatures are 28 millimeters, and the gaming is played conveniently on a square grid, one inch squares where each inch is equal to five feet. What about HO scale? HO stands for half of O. Uh, whenever you see like the scales that are written in letters, like H, HO, N, and other letters of the alphabet, basically, these are all railroad scales. HO scale is a 20 millimeter. This is surprisingly not a very common scale. You don't see it as much. It's used more for wargaming and more for war games that involve uh, vehicles because there are certain popular lines of uh, miniature tanks and other military vehicles are made in this scale by a company called Rocco. In that scale, one centimeter equals one meter, one to 100, which conveniently is the scale used for uh, Polymancer's product, Pummel, the pickup multi-genre miniatures easy-to-learn game. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But uh, HO scale is used. It's popular because a lot of war gamers like to use props from, that are sold and scenery that are sold for... Um, Trains. For, yeah, for yeah. model railroading. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. So that's why that scale is popular. So I guess if you're playing an RPG game... You can tell that your GM is railroading you into the adventure if he starts using HO scale. It's a good way of putting it. Okay. Well, actually, that's actually, that's, that's that was a terrible pun. No, no, it's a terrible pun, but it brings up a, a cogent point here. If the game master is going to spend that much time, like on miniatures and getting all this scenery and all these props that are used to make, you know, the grand final battle or various scenes that the GM has planned in advance, and the players do something that avoids that encounter or changes the encounter a great deal. It's going to throw a major wrench in the works, and the GM is going to be somewhat upset. Now, I'm not saying that if you use miniatures, you got to play along with and let the GM railroad you. That's just stupid. But one thing that the GM does have to be ready is not to do too much preparation when running a game in a system that uses a lot of miniatures, because then you are going to be tempted to railroad the players, and they will hate you for it. Now we've spoken about scales and this, and we spoke a little bit about scenery. I mean, I think there's a difference between using miniatures and scenery. Like, miniatures is one thing, but if you actually want to make sceneries and so on, I mean, the ultimate coolest game ever would be, like, you know, this huge table where you just go around and have this whole make-believe world, and you just move your minis across. You mean a realistic di two-scale diorama of an entire environment? A, an like a dungeon or something. That would be, like, super cool. But at the same time, a lot of people that I've seen online mentioning that usually the scenery looks really cool, but when you actually come down to try to play with it, it's very, like, limiting. And a lot of people are saying it looks cool, uh, you know, it makes nice pictures, but in terms of actually using the scenery and, and doing it, it's a little awkward to play the RPG with them, you know. And when you think about it, it's just in order to have like a really large dungeon, you'd have to have such a huge scenery that it would be like 
almost impractical to actually have. So I think you know I have to distinguish using scenery from the minis. And the minis you can use, you know, with in conjunction with like play mats and so on. I've seen people use minis on the, the you know, projecting their dungeon map using a PowerPoint projector they hook up to their ceiling. And there, so there are videos of people doing this on YouTube, and we will put a link to that in the yeah. show notes because it is cool to watch. And yeah. Though so that's probably the uh, an easier alternative to using a you know just scenery, but the minis themselves as a way to actually get a better idea of where your character is and then more of the strategy of any combat you know that's pretty much what we're talking about now right now the miniatures themselves the ultimate point is they're more important than the surface that they're played on with you can build that from there it's more important just to have a visual representation that can show your characters in relation to everything that they interact with in the gaming environment. Now we look at scales and so on. What about if your RPG doesn't have rules to use minis? I mean, there's a lot of RPGs. The reason why people don't really use miniature for them is, number one, there's no miniatures out there for them. Or number two, there's no use of the miniatures in the RPG because there's really no use for them. There's actually no actual rules to be used for them. Now, this is true. Now, the uh, phenomenon of there being not enough miniatures to go with the RPG is tragically true. I mean, there are so many games that have so many great concepts for what the characters look like, for what the monsters look like, and the unique aspects of the world that you'd think it would be so cool to see those things in 25, 28 millimeter or whatever scale you want to use. But they're just not made or if they're made you have to really seek them out and find them any way you can here's a note that the more esoteric or interesting your gaming interests are the more likely the miniatures that you want to get are going to have to be bought by mail order because these more often than not are not sold in game hobby stores yeah they probably were not even made necessarily for a game hobby but are just like miniatures or things that are made for something else or so you'd have to like be a little bit creative or even like modify existing minis one of the um, earlier um, games that i thought was really cool was dark future it actually came with a bunch of minis and cars but it actually showed you how to take like you know well, hot what, wheel cars what, what genre rpg was this? it wasn't rpg it was like it was kind of weird it was kind of like a war game and an rpg at the same time it was kind of like mad max car wars type of thing okay they had like some uh, choose your own adventures as well but the idea is you can take a car any kind of like little match wheel car and then mess it up and do your own mini and then use it because basically in, in the mad max world type of world your uh, the car is is your character you know that's your mini so it was kind of cool that you could actually just go out there and make your own minis but they also sold like small little guys that you to go with there you know the drivers so it, you know so they made them to scale fortunately it was really it went out of fade pretty quickly and can't really find any of this stuff anymore but i mean you can still actually go out there if you're playing a mad max world type of thing and then just customize your card i mean there's so many ways you can do this uh you can get the car you can get like those you know gi joe weapons and then glue it on the car and 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 that sort of thing and then do some really interesting stuff with that so but the idea is there's some interesting things you can do if you want to actually go out there and customize minis vehicles are probably easier to customize than minis because the minis themselves you know they're actually made well there are people out there who do all sorts of custom jobs with wargaming miniature figures and many wargaming miniature figures are sold you know with alternate arms and legs so you can post 
pose them differently. Also different weapons you can put in there, also different heads. There are a few companies that are infamous for making whole kits like this. They're very difficult to work with. You end up doing a lot of gluing if they're metal. There are actually people who solder these. You can see videos for these also on YouTube. It's insane the detail and the dedication that some people dedicate to this sort of thing. But um, it is possible to customize miniature figures, but boy, you have to have steady hands and really good eyes for it. And a lot of patience. An extreme amount of patience. This is not an instant gratification type of hobby at all. It's a very slow hobby. The other thing, too, now that we've spoken about what to do if you can't really find minis for your game, also, is the, the game system itself. Yeah, the game system itself. If you don't have actual rules that call in the use of minis, then it's a good idea maybe to actually either make house rules or to find some rule systems online from other people to actually tack on to your game system so you can actually use the minis. Now, like as far as the rules that are required, if the role-playing game you're playing has rules for your rate of movement, you know, how far a figure moves in a turn, also for ranges, how effective a weapon is when used at this range, further out or further out than that, what its maximum range is, and a strict time limit per turn, like each turn is six seconds, that's all you really need in order to play miniatures in your role-playing game. It doesn't have to have super detailed tactical rules in order for you to benefit from having miniatures because what you're doing is you're taking those rules that are already there and adding a visual reference to it on your table. Role-playing games that are more hardcore for miniatures, like D&D, like GURPS, and like Pathfinder and like many others, will have rules for not only movement and range and areas of effect, but also for things like how long it takes you to turn to change direction, and also rules for attacking people from behind or from the flank that are different from attacking them head-on. More detailed things that are more akin to what you'll find in a war game. Yeah, and the other thing too is that if you try to apply these rules without the miniatures, it gets a little bit difficult because how do you know you're flanking somebody you're behind? But with the miniature, it's all there, it's on the table. So you can see what there are some games out there that really can't be used without miniatures, is what you're saying. Well, no, some games you can use without the miniatures. I can play D and D without the miniatures, but if I want to have the flanking rules, well, I know you're flanking him or you're attacking from behind. Well, okay, but where are you in relation to somebody else who's in line of sight? It adds a little bit more. uh, It just depends how intensive you want the actual combat to be. You can still do it so that the combat is not the center of the game. Or if it is, everything else that leads up to it makes the combat worthwhile. Basically, if you're using miniatures in an RPG, you're not going to use miniatures for the whole thing. If you're... Like for just talking to the old man yeah, in the tavern. Yeah, you know, you, you, otherwise you're, you're playing like, you know, with Barbie dolls and going like, Hello, I'm the old man in the tavern. And oh, yes, well, I, you know, that, that's, that, I, that's once I guess it gets silly. If you're playing a game where dungeon exploration type of thing, like where you're moving your figure across the dungeon, okay, that's one thing. But eventually, even that, you'll still run out of table space, you know. So that's why you should make, if you do that, you make modular pieces that you can just move along, you know. Okay, you're still in a hallway that you can see 10 feet in front of you and 10 feet behind you. 
that could be interesting in some way, you know, to emulate computer games like Ultima or Diablo, but I don't know why anybody would want to do that for very long. I guess most of the miniatures, I guess, that would be used in RPG would have to be for combat. But you can do the combat without some of these special rules, or you can do them with. Where it gets interesting is that if it was like a mass combat and you want to have the players to be directing troops and stuff like that, then it's getting more into like a war game, and in in which case you'd want to use some more uh, specialized miniature. And we've got a little system that you can actually incorporate with your game that basically is generic. Again, we are going to tell you how to obtain the rules for Pommel. They're available on the internet for free, as a matter of fact. There's a link to it in the show notes. Pummel was originally designed to be integrated with the role-playing experience so that you could have quick and easy but tactically detailed miniatures combats using large forces on either side in a role-playing game. The link to the rules are in the show notes. It first appeared in Polymancer Volume 1, Issue Number 10, which included a scenario that was heavily dependent upon mass miniatures combat called Operation Burning Chain. This was a military sci-fi thing, sort of in the mode of, like, best described as Starship Troopers meets Black Hawk Down. And there have been other scenarios in future issues of uh, Polymancer, some taking place in World War II, others in the Old West, that also made heavy use of the pummel rules, too. To give you an idea how easy it is to play Pommel, remember the E-L and it stands for easy to learn, I can actually give you the rules while standing on one foot. The standard scale is one centimeter equals one meter, in other words, HO or 20 millimeter scale, or one one hundred. The typical figure moves five centimeters per turn, 25 centimeters while running and everything is resolved using a d10. You roll one d10. If you make a seven, the other figure is incapacitated for one turn. Each turn is five seconds long, by the way. If you roll eight, nine, or ten, then the figure is disabled for the duration of the scenario. That's it in a nutshell. Now, there are modifiers based on how powerful the weapon being used is, how much armor the opponent has, and other factors. Every RPG handles this sort of thing differently. The rule of thumb is that modifiers in any scenario are going to range from minus 3 to plus 3. They might be cumulative, but the best weapon is going to be a plus 3 weapon, and the worst weapon is going to be a minus 3 weapon. An average, say a sword, is going to be zero, unmodified. And that's it basically in a nutshell. There, Everything else is just a list of modifiers or exceptions to the above. The, obviously, that could just be for the all the other people in other than the RPG characters. Obviously, you might want to still use the actual RPG rules that you're using for resolving the combat between your characters and some of the key monsters, but... For emulating a mass combat, they can use that system. That's right, that's right. The idea is that you can do your detailed uh, combat using all the special rules that you know and love in your RPG of choice, using those rules alone, but for the mass combat where all your red shirts, fighting the enemy's red shirts, your expendables, if you will, use pummel, they'll knock each other down silly, and you'll still have a lot of fun. So that's basically um, our take on miniatures. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people discussing how to use miniatures in their game. We're going to take a little break until our next segment, 
where we'll have a very special kind of game book after this pause. If you like this show, come on over to RPGpodcast.com, where you'll find dozens more great role-playing podcasts. Our next segment is going to be dedicated to a very special kind of book. Everybody who's a gamer who's listening to this podcast probably remembers the Choose Your Own Adventure or the Fighting Fantasy books from the 80s. Those were the books that were very popular. You turn to a separate chapter every time you make a decision. And basically it was a choose-your-own plot. And it hasn't been really made now because it's sort of obsolete with computer games and so on. But sometimes people actually do come up with a new uh, choose-your-own-adventure book. And in this case, uh, we met up with Sherwin Tija. He actually is interested in gaming. He uh, does a lot of computer games, loves the choose-your-own-adventure books, and decided that he wants to make a new choose-your-own-adventure book. And he also happens to be obsessed with cats. And so this book is called You Are a Cat. You Are a Cat. And in this game, basically, you choose what you do, and your character is a cat. And so we thought it was an interesting concept. We had a nice chat with him, and that will be coming up right after this. Okay, Mags, you know about the reviews, interviews, news, and discussions that we have here on All Games Considered. But before you join up, we should tell you about the curse. Wait, what? Yeah, what's this about? The co-host curse. I mean, you know, first there was just Mike and his bizarre gardening accident. Poor bizarre guy. Bizarre gardening. And then there was the first Chris. He choked on... Mark, what does this have to do with anything? Well, you guys are going through co-host at an alarming rate. And it's not going to get better if Mark keeps scaring them away. All Games Considered, featuring news and conversations about all aspects of tabletop gaming, is a proud member of Goblin, the gaming broadcast network. Start your journey at www.agcpodcast.info. Let me guess, the second Chris spontaneously combusted during a recording, right? Yeah, how did you know? I'm with Sherwin Tisha. He's an artist, illustrator, also a writer. You have made a book, a Choose Your Own Adventure book, called You Are a Cat. That's right. Actually, it's a pick-a-plot book, but it's in the style of Choose Your Own Adventure. I think for copyright reasons, I cannot say it's a Choose Your Own Adventure book, but that becomes kind of the standard way of describing that kind of book, which is basically a book where you can make choices and go on different narratives. And so, yes, I've made a Choose Your Own Adventure style book from the point of view of a cat, and you are a cat. It's called You Are a Cat, and you get to basically do the things that a cat would do during the day and go on little adventures that are a little wild, you know, but I, I think plausible adventures. What prompted you to make this book? Do you have a cat yourself? I don't have a cat myself, but I love cats more than anything. And what prompted me to write this book is I've always liked Choose Your Own Adventure books, and I wanted to write one myself. And I think it's a kind of book that isn't often made anymore. I don't know anyone who's writing one, which breaks my heart, because I think everyone should, you know, definitely try. Everyone has written poetry. People are trying to write novels. You know, they, there are different kinds of 
books you could write. But very few people try the choose-your-own-adventure genre. And it's something I wanted to do. And I, I thought for, making it from the point of view of a cat would suit me. Because for a long time, I couldn't imagine any kind of adventure I would want to go on. That I would want to spend like a year writing. Except, you know, this one from the point of view of a cat. Because I love them so much. Did you read a lot of these choose-your-own-adventures and, and gaming books? I mean, are you yourself a gamer? Uh, or see a closet gamer? I'm not a closet gamer. I'm a, well, I, I haven't done much Dungeons & Dragons. I play a lot of video games. Like, a lot of video games. But also, I read a lot of choose-your-own-adventure books growing up. So, like, you know, every time I went to the library, I went to that section and got a whole bunch. And so I, I miss the genre and wanted to, like, contribute to it as well as making an adventure that you could go on and have an exciting time. Because I believe that when cats go out in the morning and then they come back at night, they've had a crazy day out in the world, but you don't get to see it. And so I, I wrote the book kind of wanting you to kind of go on that journey. Is there a particular reason why you don't have cats and so obviously you're completely crazy about them? I think at this stage in my life, I live in an apartment on the third floor, And it has no view, and it's very small. And I always thought that if I had a cat, I would let it go out so it could have adventures and, like, get into fights, come home after having killed something, like a bird or, you know, I want a cat who has a good life. And I didn't feel that was possible where I'm living right now, so that's why I don't have a cat, because I just want a good life if I have a cat. But at the end of the book, there's a series of plan books. Are they really in the works, or is it... Uh, I mean, you have, like, you know, like Go Back in Time and Kill Hitler and, 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 and other titles. I made all those up because I thought it would be fun to create a series of fake previews for future books that will likely never happen, and they're not going to happen. I had a great time making those books or those fake books fake previews for future books that will never happen because it felt like I was actually making the book even though I didn't have to actually write it you know I just had to draw the cover and write the synopsis but uh, in fact I, I think I, I am working on a sequel to the cat book which is again another book from the point of view of a cat but during the zombie post-apocalypse so you're a cat the zombie post-apocalypse is happening all around you, like people are being turned into zombies, and as a cat, you have choices. Like, do you become a zombie cat yourself, you know? Or get your girlfriend, you have a girlfriend as the cat, and then you escape from the zombies together. Or you live with the family, right? So do you go with the family to their cottage to try to escape the zombie apocalypse in the city? So there, there's various choices. Your book, you know, there's like sections, you make choices, you can have like, you know, you can actually die in the, uh, as a cat. Yeah. What happens when you die in this book? Well, as a cat, you have nine lives, and there are eight possible ways to die in the book. So there's always a way out. Death is not final for you as a cat in the book. So basically, if you really, you know, don't know what you're doing, you can die eight times, and then eventually you'll figure out how to you'll, solve the book. You'll find the good ending. But, you know, it, look, the way I read those books when I was younger is that you put your fingers in them, 
in case you need to go back, right? You just kind of like mark your place. And I totally acknowledge that in the book, and it's totally fine. You know, people are going to read it the way they want to read it, and I appreciate that and, you know, allow for that. How long did it take you to write You Are a Cat? It didn't take long, actually. I wrote it really quickly. It took, you know, a, a number of months, but I just had such a great time. It took me a while to plan it, to figure out, like, what choices that you are going to be able to have. So mapping it out took a while. But once it was all mapped out, writing it was a lot of fun. I had a, gr- a lot of fun writing it, so I'm hoping that people will have a lot of fun reading it. I guess this is something you made all by yourself, or is it distributed in stores? Uh, how, how, where, if somebody wants to, a listener wants to get a copy of this, where do, where do you have to go? Just Google, you are a cat, Conundrum Press. Conundrum Press is my publisher, and you are a cat is the title. So it'll take you to my publisher's page, and there's like a, you could buy it from, from him. He'll mail it to you. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Do you have yourself a website? I don't really have a website. I I don't really have a need for it, but I do have... I put on weird events. So, you know, just go to my blog. It's jane, she is a clerk.blogspot.com. And the my production company is called Chat Perdue Productions. Okay. What kind of weird events do you do? Oh, I put on a slow dance night. So we play all slow songs all night long. And if you are shy... So this is people slow dance at this. They just kind of hug and turn their feet. And you don't need to know how to dance to go to this event. And if you don't have anyone to dance with, we have designated dancers for the first few hours of the event if you're shy. And we have dance cards so that you can book a dance for a certain song if you want. And then I also put on a strip spelling bee, which is like a regular spelling bee. But if you get a word wrong, you have to take off a third of your clothing. And it's done in front of an audience. So you don't have to participate. You don't have to compete. You can just watch. So I put on these kinds of events. They're kind of quirky and strange and partly participative. So people, you know, I expect people to, like, come... You know, if you're not going to dance, you know, you, you cheer, you know. So it's that kind of event. All right. Well, thank you very much for being in the show. I was here at Exposine. And I guess the last thing we can say is meow. Meow. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Bye. That was Sherwin Tija, the um, illustrator and writer of You Are a Cat. And he mentioned that it is illustrated. Yes. Yes, it's illustrated. Actually, there's illustrations from the point of view of the cat. Oh, okay. So, so it's the cat's eye view of the it's world. It's a cat's eye view of the world. I mean, he's an illustrator, and he also wrote the text. So he's coming up after books in that series. And there were a few funny joke ones in there, too. And can actually find them. The company that uh, actually sells this book is called Conundrum Press. And the uh, website is going to be on the show notes. And it should be interesting to know, if you are actually interested in playing a cat, there is a uh, role-playing game out there that allows you to play a cat. It's designed by John Wick. And it's called Cat. And if you can't figure out what you're supposed to do with a role-playing game called Cat, then maybe you should play Mouse. Actually, Mouse Guard, which is by, Mouse Guard, yeah, yeah. which is by a different designer, <laughs> and it's a completely different theme. But uh, no, cat theme is is that the cats that are in your house are actually the protectors of humankind from the supernatural. 
And this does appeal to anybody who owns a cat because everybody who knows a cat knows that their feline friends are probably smarter than them and care about their owners very much. Well, actually, just as long as they're useful, then they just discard them like yesterday's garbage. They, they sort of like use you and then control you from afar. They got you f- figuring out that you know that what you're doing, that you're in control, but really they're, they're evil. I mean, they made the Egyptians build a whole bunch of pyramids. What, you think it was UFOs? I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so that was our show. Thank you for listening. And all we can say is, Sherwin, if you're out there, meow to you. If you would like to pick up a copy of Pummel, pick up Multijar Miniatures Easy to Learn System, you can find a copy at www.scr.bi slash pummel. That's www.scr.bi slash p-u-m-m-e-l. Pummel. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode. You can find out more about who we are and what we do at our website, www.polymancer.com, or our main corporate website, www.polymancerstudios.com. You can email us at dicecast at polymancer.com, follow us on Twitter at polymancer, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash polymancer, or myspace.com slash polymancer. The music for this segment, Fort Minor, Remember the Name, BYFH Remix by Chojin, Violated Instrumental by Technetium, Industrial March Beat and Triple Layer Guitar in E by Neurowax are all released under a Creative Commons license. This episode is copyright 2011 Polymancer Studios Incorporated, released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivative works license. This episode may be freely redistributed as long as it is done for no charge and as long as due credit is given to the copyright owners. Full text of the Creative Commons license is available at creativecommons.org. Dicecast is a trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Polymancer is a registered trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Thank you for listening to the Dicecast. Cast.